the the brothers had had really no idea. And I actually got the I, I'd heard this anecdote. I got it confirmed. I did a talk in November in Burbank at the Burbank Public Library, and a bunch of Warner Brothers employees were there. Some of the Warner family was there. Um, a lot of interesting stories came out of that. But with animation, I talked to an animator who just retired, and he heard it straight from Chuck Jones that um, Jack Warner would come into their office every now and then and ask literally how's our mouse doing this is the lawyers guns and money podcast Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. My name is Rob Farley, uh, and joining to me today uh, is uh, the beloved Eric Loomis, uh, and also uh, our guest, uh, Chris Yogurst, who is the author of a new book from the University Press of Kentucky. Um, the name of that book is The Warner Brothers, and there's really no subtitle. I mean, that's just it. It's just The Warner Brothers. Um, uh, uh, which is uh, about Warner Brothers Studios. Um, Chris is a scholar who uh, works on uh, a great deal of uh, film and entertainment-oriented uh, 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 issues and uh, questions and history. Um, uh, the author of several other books, um, including uh, one of them is Hitler or Hollywood hates hates Hitler. Is that yep. yeah? Hollywood Hates Hitler, um, which I, I'm actually looking forward to reading. Um, and uh, he currently teaches at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, uh, I think pop culture and uh, film classes there. Um, so, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Um, and I guess uh, we'll start. Can you just tell us a little bit about the uh, the new book? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, when you mentioned the, the no subtitle, I went through several subtitles, one of which was like how the Warner Brothers invented America and, and other things like that. And we realized that, you know, there, there's been no book that really got to all of the Warner Brothers and how they were so deeply connected, not only to movie making and pushing that industry forward, but also into U.S. and international politics and how they they saw these two things intertwine so much. And we we figured that the most powerful title is just the Warner Brothers and not Warner Bros, like the studio, you know, the brothers, you know, this is the family, this is the entire empire. And <clears throat> I really wanted to investigate how they bridged um, this new mass entertainment <clears throat> with um, communication and politics and, and, and social issues and all of these things. Um, you know, going from, you know, the you know wars to the Great Depression to the Nazis to communists. I mean, it's all in there. Um, so I, I try to uh, really it's it's kind of a beginning to end story um, with a lot of uh, tension and drama in between. It just so happens that it's all true. Yeah. And I mean, there, there was uh, well. I mean, one of the first things that sort of occurred to me in reading it, right? I mean, I didn't realize, I mean, first, I didn't realize how limited their um, means were um, at, you know, essentially their family means and their growing up in the family and and sort of how important even, um, you know, the very small amount of money they were able to collect in, in almost rickety schemes uh, towards the beginning. Um, but also, like, how much of how much of their story was characterized by tragedy, including the death of one of the brothers? Like, I, I was I, I was completely unaware that 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 had taken place. Oh, absolutely. So, so much tragedy. I mean, they lost siblings, you know, when they were, you know, single digit years old, they lost um, their brother Milton, who probably would have been a part of the movie enterprise. He got drafted into professional baseball and then dropped dead. Um, and he was going to do that and then come work for the brothers. 
right? You got Sam, obviously the big, you know, the big, uh, the tragedy, but then also Harry's son, Lewis dies. I mean, it's just, <clears throat> I mean, just going through the book. I mean, this is the first time I think I was really doing a lot of research. And I mean, I got really angry researching Hollywood hates Hitler. Um, <laughs> but this one, I, I, I just, I really just started to write with a heavy heart. I mean, what they went through, you start to feel it after a while. You know, one of the things that I've, Found interesting. I don't really know why. Like this, obviously, is how one would expect it to go. But you know, we're talking about the early film industry and the creation of Warner Brothers, and it it sort of felt like you know, here are these guys, you know, who are bad, you know, are kind of winging it, don't really know what they're doing, and uh, uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, they're Warner Brothers, right? Like, like, like they, they become. It feels like they go from almost nothing, or just these guys, you know, who are part of a really a much larger ecosystem of just people trying to make money in the movies to being one of the major studios, seemingly not not exactly overnight, but like pretty fast. It 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 was fast, but it was also. I mean, one thing I like to say a lot: by the time the the studios incorporated in 1923. You know, they they had been messing around with the movie industry for almost 20 years. I mean, they were kind of, you know, 1905 and they were kind of stuck in a sense in a, you know, they were their growth was was would only get so far before competition would shut them out. Or, you know, I, I talk about in the book that, you know, the big episode with Thomas Edison, he was going after everybody for patents and all and shutting down all kinds of companies, not just the Warners, but all kinds of other ones and some of the more established moguls like Carl Emley of Universal and William Fox of Fox helped uh, rein him in. Um, But once they started to go, this is where you're right. It feels overnight. Once you get into like the 19 teens and they have my four years in Germany, it's very quick. But by the time they buy the, their first studio lot, they grow that and, you know, they invest in sound and then they buy the the lot in Burbank where they still own uh, I mean, the, the amount that they grew in, you know, like a decade is is just incredible. So I want to come back to because one of the films that uh, I really uh, sort of wanted to see first reading this, I've, there's a ton of movies I haven't seen. that I really need to watch. Um, but the one you just mentioned, I do want to return to because I have never seen my four years in Germany. I'm not even sure if it's available. Um, I know I think it's, it's on not, YouTube. Yeah, it's not. Oh, it is on YouTube. OK, interesting. I think so. That's uh, where I saw it when I was researching. Oh, OK. Um, but sort of to piggyback on Eric's question, you know, one of obviously, ever since the dawn of film, um, there's been this this story about um, sort of how the history of film is connected to business interests on the one hand and the growth of technology on the other hand, right? So that right, so much of even early films about technology, so much of film right now is about just technology. Could you tell us a little bit about? sort of how the brothers themselves um, interacted with technology, technologies they developed, how that shaped kind of their approach to making movies and then approach to um, sort of Warner Brothers as a business? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got these distinct brothers. I mean, Sam, I mean, then, you know, that's not, not a revelation in my book. I mean, it's, it's clear, you know, for, for ages that Sam was the technical whiz. He was the one who first was interested in this broken projector that he was helping someone repair and ended up buying it and bringing it home. Um, that that's kind of the legend that starts this whole you know brotherly interest in in motion pictures. <clears throat> so Sam, along the way, was always he was the one who pushed for the first roadshow movie. He was the one who he was actually the one who discovered my four years in Germany as well. So he he also was pivotal in bringing their film content 
from just entertainment to being like topical, like news of the day. Like how do we engage in that? Um, <clears throat> you've got Jack, who of course was was the was the you know consummate showman. Um, you know, and, and that he really shined as a producer <clears throat> there uh, in that sense. And you have the older brothers, Harry and Albert, um, who were who were the business geniuses here. They were the ones, you know, they were the older brothers that was so, you know, you had this combination of this kind of young flamboyant curiosity coupled with this older, more stoic and balanced reason. Um, and, and these two generations ended up balance, balancing each other out perfectly. And as the business grew, you know, the older brothers knew where to put the money, where to invest it, while the younger brothers were experimenting and traveling and trying things. And, you know, then they would, you know, what Sam, you know, famously convinced Harry to invest in, in sound and, and buy a company that already had the technology started. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, together, they were a really, really unique combination of interests and personalities and expertise that really made the studio what it what it became yeah i mean i, I especially loved the anecdote you had there about uh, how you know during the silent era people would lose half of a movie um and the, you would just stick a different reel on right and the audiences really wouldn't even notice uh, yeah. that they weren't they weren't watching the same movie um as 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 the reel changed um and i thought that was just absolutely fascinating right it just mm -hmm. tells you something interesting about like why people were at the movies and why people wanted to go to the movies at the time right they were just curious just seeing the moving images was kind of good enough for a while right and that's why Sam was so smart where he could really kind of see around the corner of the future because he knew that, you know, what what, what was the novelty, what was the entertainment today is going to need to grow tomorrow. You know, audiences are going to need something else. And, you know, they were they were not, you know, that you had these, you know, MGM and Paramount and these other studios were were much bigger and much more powerful. So he knew they needed some kind of Hail Mary to really bring them up front with those other companies. Um, and that, that's exactly what he did when, when the studio purchased Vita, Vitagraph and changed the name to Vitaphone and then started developing sound shorts and, and, and feature films eventually. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things I, I, that I, that I definitely took from this is that, um, you, you know, part of the reason for the Warner Brothers success is they, they seem to be very, um, you know, go back to kind of Rob's question. They, they really were, um, you know, they really understood that the, the technology was going to be the, the, the future. And it seems like throughout the really throughout the whole book, they're always like at the cutting edge of what the next technological advancement is going to be. And and I mean, you know, was that sort of different than some of the other major studios? Is that something that they had in common with, you know, Paramount or, or other Universal or other other studios that would, you know, come out of this? this world of early film and, and, and become the, the giants that they did. That's a really good question. So yeah, it wasn't just, you know, Warners weren't the only ones just pushing the technology, right? They were the, why they're important is because they were the first to successfully bring feature sound movies to market, right? <clears throat> so you had Fox with his movie tone technology um, pushing that. And the only reason really that didn't take off because that's, so you had the, the difference here is the, the Warner brothers technology was sound on disc, 
which was a real kind of pain in the ass technology that didn't last long because you had to start the film and start a recording, you know, based essentially a wax disc, like putting a record needle on a record player at the same time to make sure the sound and the movie were synced up. And if somebody bumped the projector, bumped the sound machine, it was all off. <clears throat> so it was really touchy. What Fox was doing was sound on film, where the sound was on the film, that's, um, and it would, would get, uh, tra you know, transferred through to the speakers directly from the projector. Um, <clears throat> that's what eventually in the 30s took over. But William Fox had a series of, of health issues. I think he got in the car accident, then the Great Depression hit, he lost it, lost everything, didn't have the power to, to really continue fighting that battle. Um, <clears throat> but Warner Brothers won that one. Um, but then they were they experimented with um, some of the first um, Technicolor. Uh, they they they, uh, they weren't really big in horror movies, but they basically did an imitation of Universal with a couple of Michael Curtiz films, um, The Mystery of the Wax Museum and um, Doctor X, I think, um, both in two strip Technicolor. So they were they were already playing around with that, um, <clears throat> and also kind of fearlessly using it in a genre that they didn't they weren't normally producing. Um, they were, they were pretty quick on the widescreen technology um, in the fifties. Um, and, and all throughout, I think what made Warner brothers different, I mean, everybody was always on the, the, you know, with an eye on the, on the future of technology. I think what made Warner brothers distinct is that in addition to that, they also had an eye on what, what is the culture you know, mirroring the culture, you know, what are our audiences talking about? What are our audiences feeling? And this is why, like, during the Depression, you have other studios making escapist movies and Warner Brothers making movies about the Great Depression. So the audiences are, you know, they, they became known as this kind of the everyman studio that um, here, here's a studio of these, these big, you know, producers in Hollywood. And but the audiences feel like they can see us out here in the Midwest struggling because, you know, their movies reflect what we're going through. And they and that kind of um, content was consistent throughout the entire time the brothers were running the company. So uh, one interesting bit here uh, that, that goes to the relationship to, to myself and Eric, uh, we actually met at the University of Oregon's Instructional Media Center way, way, way back when in the 1990s. And so we have we have done the thing of splicing film together and of running projectors and even the cigarette burns. Like that was part of our yep. job too for features was to pay attention to the cigarette burns um, and to switch between reels. And we're probably, I mean, we got to be the last generation that's capable of having, that's had that experience or even knows what those things are. Although I, was, I really wasn't capable at the time. <laughs> it's amazing I didn't get fired for screwing up people's class. <laughs> I think it was more of a motivation issue, I think, for you. But um. yes, <laughs> yes. So, so uh, go ahead, Eric. No, I was going to say I was, this actually reminds me of a story that uh, uh, that I that I want to tell uh, right now about that experience, which was that when I was once there was one term we were on the quarters where um, you know I didn't know that much about film. I mean, it wasn't really a big part of uh, my experience growing up, except for you know whatever was popular at the day, but. I had to show the, uh, there was one term where whoever was teaching the intro film class, you know, at that point, you know, they were ordering these reels that would come and they didn't know what the quality was going to be of the reel. And so the, the instructor would come in and sit, sit through it. And so I got this kind of like one-on without ever taking a film course, this kind of like one-on-one -on -one intro to film thing. It was from like the beginning of film to, I guess, think 1945. Right. And so it was all of these early films. So I'm like watching birth of a nation with no context, except for 
like watching this movie about the freaking clan and that's how i that's how i first watched birth of a nation but also i mean it's when i first saw my first hitchcock it's when i first saw my uh my first silent films my first you know chaplain stuff anyway there's this like weird moment about how people maybe get into into the films and you know that was mine so since you brought it up rob i was gonna tell a story oh yeah 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 um so my, my, my question is, I think, fairly similar to Eric's and is sort of leads to back to where we were going. Um, how, so there's a lot of longevity here, right? I mean, so we get, you know, basically the Warner family, at least Jack, gets us all the way almost to the 1970s, or right, I think, or into the 1970s. I can't remember. In the, yeah. yeah. Um, now, is that kind of longevity, is that common in the industry, right? If you were to look at uh, Universal and MGM and Fox and the other ones, are they also still in the 1960s being run by a lot of the people who were the founders or who were there in the 19-teens? No, not at all. That was very unique. Um, You know, there was a couple, I mean, a lot of people refer to Jack Warner as the last mogul. Daryl Zanuck was still alive there in the the mid-70s. but if you think of like MGM, you know, Marcus Lowe died in the 20s. Louis B. Mayer was pushed out of the company in the early 50s. Um, Carl Lemley, founder of the Universal, died in the late 30s. I mean, so some of these people, I mean, Adolf Zukor, oh, who was a big part of Paramount. I mean, he lived into the 70s. He was into his hundreds, but he was really not a major player. I mean, he was on the board and all these kinds of things. He wasn't really a major player at that studio since probably the 30s. Um, so there was a lot of these people that were much older when they started, um, and were older and, and maybe that was, that was, um, you know, that helped people like William Fox. I mean, he died, I think in the thirties or forties, he didn't, he he never really fully recovered. Um, but some of these people that were already successful in other businesses and already had, you know, the banking connections and all this kind of stuff, you know, could get going a little faster in the teens and twenties. Um, so the, and the, and the Warners were definitely compared to a lot of this group, definitely a little bit younger as well. I mean, I think what made them kind of a powerhouse is you had, you had the older brothers, right? Harry Warner died in 58. Um, so he was, he was definitely a part of that older generation, but you had, you know, both that and the younger crowd, uh, in one family business up at the top, you know, of, of the company. So they were able to kind of you know, have that old guard run the show in the very beginning and then transfer to the younger uh, guard, even though that transfer with Warner Brothers was really shaky and really kind of awful. Um, But I think that's what also helped the the longevity of the studio for a long time, because even once these companies got bought out by major conglomerates that weren't involved in the film industry at all, they kept Jack Warner as head of production so you still had this old Hollywood soul continuing to, um, even if you didn't have control over everything, even into the 60s, um, green lighting movies and having impact on content. And like we were talking about before we started recording, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? You know, he's still going to bat against the last little bit of the censors to to get this movie accepted. You know, you know so here's this guy who'd been battling the censors since the 30s, still going to bat in the mid 60s. Um, cause he knew how to do it. Um, so I think the, the Warners really benefited. I know I answered way more questions than the one. No, no, no. <laughs> well, no. And, and to get to Bonnie and Clyde, right. I mean, so we start, you know, we have public enemy in 1931 and Bonnie and Clyde in 68. I probably get the years a little bit off right there, but, um, 
you know, and it's still it's still fundamentally the same guy. And that's that's really interesting to me. Right. Right. Yeah. I think Bonnie and Clyde was 67. He was nominated for Oscars in 68. Um, but yeah, he was still even Warren Beatty tried to sell Jack that movie as like, this is just like your, you know, the 30s gangster films. And Jack didn't quite see it the same, of course, because Bonnie and Clyde is very much sympathetic to the gangsters, um, which is very different um, than a lot of what we saw in the 30s. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was, I, what I like about the Bonnie and Clyde thing, it's definitely a full circle moment for Jack Warner, even though he still didn't fully understand the movie. Um, it's, you know, really pioneering the first generation of really great gangster films and then coming back and still with a seat at the table during the new Hollywood kind of revision of that genre, I think is really cool. <clears throat> yeah, you know, before we go too much farther, I mean, I guess... Um... You know, and I don't think we've we've really covered this, but um, you know, uh, why why the Warner Brothers? I mean, I mean, I guess I'm surprised there wasn't a general biography of them. But how did you how did you make the decision to move from you know your previous book on on Hitler or on on Hollywood and the Nazis to talking about Warner Brothers? Was it did it have to do with you know? I mean, the Warner Brothers, you know, as you point out. Uh, are a little bit more um, political and more willing to take on a few risks uh, mm -hmm. in their films than a lot of the other studios, which is interesting given that, you know, so many of the studios, you know, some of what we might argue because they were Jewish, but a lot of the studios were run by, were run by Jewish right. people. So, so it didn't have to be that way. Um, so how did that transition, how did that transition take place? And was it, you know, and, and I guess maybe it's another way to talk about, um, you know, the, the way in which they approach those challenges of the thirties. Yeah, I so my my dissertation was on the Warner Brothers house style. <clears throat> so I was already kind of thinking about Warner Brothers. And during that dissertation is when I discovered Harry Warner, Harry Warner's testimony in front of the 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 senators that were going after Hollywood for anti-Nazi movies. So <clears throat> that's what kind of planted the seed for that next book um, about kind of the the lead up to the government going after Hollywood for making anti-Nazi movies in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> which is still just a weird <laughs> thing to say and hear that it even happened. Um, <clears throat> but then after, you know, going through Harry Warner's testimony again, I, what I really wanted to do was a book about Harry Warner. I was like, this guy needs more attention. And it just, as a matter of fate, I had been meaning to meet um, historian Patrick McGilligan forever. He lives not far from me, but he's just not <laughs> online and he's not anywhere. Um, I went to a book talk he did. I met him, <clears throat> told him what I was doing. He, he invited me to lunch and he told me, you need to write a book about all of the Warner Brothers, not just Harry. Um, and that's when I started thinking more about the bigger picture. Uh, you know, Harry was, you know, I try to make Harry the, the focal point as much as possible in the book because he was really the political genius of the family. He was the one who, who understood, um, you know, the political ramifications of things. He was the one I discovered told Jack Warner not to mess with HUAC. Um, <laughs> because he saw them as the clowns that they were. Um, but Jack didn't listen. <clears throat> um, so I, I really, you know, I came back to Warner Brothers really interested in Harry. And then that grew into the other, you know, the rest of the family. And it just kind of took on a, a life from there. But I mean, the biggest interest with the Warner Brothers is because of how they like, kind of like I said up front, how they took on these social and political challenges, not in only in their personal life, but also had an influence that that trickled into the type of film content that the studio was making. So uh, I think to build off that, because I, you know, it's, 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 uh, 
in a lot of ways, it's really the core of the book, I think, is is sort of the discussion of, um, you know, sort of the political relationship um, uh, between Warner and the U.S. Warner, between the Warner Brothers and the U.S. government um, and the way um, that uh, sort of Warner, the Warner Brothers took up the mantle of anti-Nazism or at least Nazi skepticism. Um, could you tell, talk a little bit more, though, because and, you know, sort of reading through this. It feels like the studio and the family are having sort of this are going through what we think of as this classic political um, this the classic political arc where somebody starts off a radical and they become a moderate and they become a conservative by the very end, right? And uh, you know, one of the things I just read here was like how aggressive Jack Warner was about supporting Nixon's candidacy in 1960, and again his candidacy for governor in 19 in 1962. Um, but zeroing in, and I know you talk about this, but but you talked about it a little bit. Here, like, how did Warner Brothers? How did the family deal with sort of post World War II anti-communism, um, which really seemed like a very dangerous place for the entire film industry to find itself in in the 19, late nineteen forties and early nineteen fifties? Like, how did how did how did Warner Brothers manage to um, manage to navigate those waters? So, yeah, that's a you know, this is something that I'm glad I, you know, I came to this book when I did, because, you know, I had, I had spent a lot of time in my undergrad researching the blacklist and reading a lot of those first books that came out uh, in the decades after. And, you know, reading those books, they all feel really politically raw, right? <clears throat> they saw anybody that um, worked with Hueck as just like this fire breathing Republican. And it's, and the more I learned, well, one of the books that influenced me in recent years was Tom Doherty's show trial. He did a really good job showing all of the layers of politics leading up to that first investigation, um, which none of which are really that clean cut. What I see with Jack is somebody who is, especially when you compare to Harry, who had so much political savvy, what I see with Jack <clears throat> is somebody who is not that politically savvy and somebody who is easily scared. And when you when you listen to his testimony in front of HUAC and when you read his public statements, um, it, it start it, they increasingly sound less strong, like Harry's always did, and more terrified, um, and more sound bitey. And you know, my my brothers will invest in a pest removal fund. Like he's he's trying, he's trying really hard to to look stronger than he is. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that that was a big weakness in Jack was politics. So, you know, and, and, and all the more important knowing, you know, learning that Harry had told Jack to ignore them. Um, and I think that really set um, a really difficult tone. I mean, of course it wasn't just Jack, right? You had Louis B. Mayer testifying, you had all kinds of people, you had actors um, and, the 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 film industry was kind of and this is something that Tom gets at in his book a little bit too. The film industry was in a kind of a tricky place because um after the war, you have you have uh ticket sales peaking and then starting to go down. So now you have this fear of <clears throat> if we start losing audiences, we're gonna start losing our business. And at the same time, you have this you know, this this red scare wave coming. And, and headlines around the country and politicians barking and all of this, like, wow, if we look like we're soft on this, 
they are going to help, um, you know, because this is getting all the headlines, they're going to help draw audiences away from us. So I think for a lot of the moguls, not all of them, some of them were, I mean, Louis B. Mayer was certainly, a, you know, dyed in the wool anti-commie. Um, but I think for Jack and for the Warners and, and some of the other people um, that were ultimately in the world, you know, the, the meeting at the Waldorf, um, that this was um, a fear of a, a pivotal moment where they might actually lose their industry if they don't put out some statement as awful as it was that we're not harboring communists because that was, you know, the, the, you know, this whole, you know, have you now or have you ever been a communist? It's like that old question, you know, how often do you beat your wife? It was like, they're already branded with this, 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 um, you know, they're already painted with the brush of communism. So now it's like, how do we navigate you know, around this while, you know, placating these politicians who have painted us into a corner. Um, so it's a, you know, I think it's one of these eras that we can make more sense of the further we get from it um, and see, you know, you know, all the angles of it. You know, there were awful players in this, right? right. Um, and, and there's no question about that. But I don't think it was as black and white as some of those first reports, you know, that came out were, were painting it. Right. And so uh, and, and I'll turn it over to Eric here in a second. But I mean, it was very interesting to me how fraught the conversation was about Elia Kazan, right? When they, when they finally gave him his um, Oscar and how much dissension there was at the Academy Awards about whether he should be applauded. And that's really interesting too, right? Because, you know, coming off Oppenheimer where, you know, there's this pretty frank discussion of the role that communism played in California uh, at, at, in, in the 1940s, which is very interesting. Um, I also just, I, I'm, I'm plowing my way through Rick Perlstein's like four volume history of the conservative movement. And I mean, it really sort of brought home too, right? You know, that, you know, by the 1980s, how much of old Hollywood just still loved Ronald Reagan Right. That it wasn't sort of the the way we think about Hollywood as this left wing radical place. Right. I mean, that's not how many of the major people in the industry, even on the acting side, thought about it. Right. Um, you know, even even in, into the 1980s. And so, I mean, the, the political story here, I thought, was very interesting because it really does complicate what, you know, people have tried to 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 tell the 1950s story in very black and white ter terms. But it is a complicated story. Well, and I could, let me follow up on that real fast because um, on, on two things you noted, Rob, because I think for one, I, sometimes when we're talking about this, because I certainly I've noticed this, I mean, you know, that so many of the lead leading stars of, of this era were really right wingers. Um, but that I, you know, I, so my assumption for a while now is that been, you know, the kind of leftist Hollywood was really much more in the writers and the, 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 the art people and, and some of the, you know, the supporting staff much more than the actors and certainly, of course, the studio heads. But the second thing about that, to go back to the, the blacklisting issue and naming names is like the very different response between Kazan um, and the ways in which people really forgave Sterling Hayden. Right. That like, you know, I don't know, Hayden showed enough self-hatred afterwards to sort of go through a forgiveness. And so, you know, when when Hayden passed, everyone sort of was like, well, it was a tough time and he did what he had to do. And the ways in which that's a very different kind of a conversation. And so I, I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. Right. Well, and that's one thing that I always kind of confused me about Kazan, because when you read his statements, they're really underwhelming. Like when you see how how angry people were at him. You make it sound that, you know, they make it sound like he, you know, he gave them all this information they didn't have and ruined all these lives single handedly. And he just basically confirmed he knew people. 
I'm not saying it was right, but it was, it was, you know, I expected it to be more of a, more of like a big smoking gun kind of thing. And I, and the more you look at a lot of the, the hearings, that's what it was, was kind of this slow burn of, of not, you know, not a lot of fireworks until you get like Dalton Trumbo, right. (laughs) You know, he's getting pulled off the the stand. Um, But you're right. There, there's a, you know, everyone interprets it a little bit differently depending on, on the star. Um, But like, even with somebody like Jack Warner, what I tried to show in here, and of course, Jack and Kazan right by the fifties are pretty close. Um, So maybe they're both, you know, seeing survivors in each other of this horrible time and both did something that wasn't so great. Um, to, you know, essentially to save their careers. But Jack, um, this is why I think, you know, kind of proves that even at the end, he wasn't really an ideologue because, right, he, he he's big on Nixon. Um, and, I, and I loved all the, going to the Warner Brothers archives, there's all, all these ads he took out in the paper for all, some of it was for Nixon, some of it were other politicians, and people were sending it back to the studio with their trash talk written in crayon over his ad. Um, I think one of them said, shove this up your ass. Like it was, it was great. But it, you know, the second that, that JFK is starting to get um, traction, he turns coat so fast, gets himself invited to the, you know, these Democrat <laughs> dinners and he's, you know, shouldering up to JFK and I, and now he's a good Democrat. Right. And it's, you know, that's why I always say I don't take anything politically from Jack all that seriously. I think the, the good stuff from the thirties and forties was probably advice from Harry he really followed Harry's lead politically. Once Harry was older and out of the picture, and of course, once he was gone, uh, that we were seeing a lot of Jack on his own and just, you know, you know, there's one book, that, the title, the, one of the first biographies of Jack um, called The Clown Prince of Hollywood. I think that's the best way, one of the best ways to describe him. You know, even, even at the end, he's just, he's kind of a clown. What, um, you know, I, I I think that we you know we can, of course you know we don't, we don't have that much time left, and so maybe you know we could shift a little bit to some appreciation um, of, of Warner Brothers. I mean, when I was reading the book, you know, one of the things that struck me um, was just um, you know just how deprived we would have been without Warner Brothers being willing to take those risks, especially in the thirties and forties with, you know, going harder edge with the gangster films and then the more political films. And then, you know, the quality of the forties with, you know, the Bogart films and things like this, that, that, that really like, you know, we're so close if, if, you know, maybe some of his films might've been made anyway, but we're so close to having such a, a much less rich film history. Um, if it's not for the kind of risk that Warner brothers was willing to take at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, and this goes back to, you know, Harry, one of his big mantras, as soon as movies started to take off, <clears throat> he always talked about the responsibility of movies to not, <clears throat> not only, um, entertain, but also to educate, you know, to push the audience um, in one way or another. And that's why you brought up Oppenheimer before. I mean, that's a, that's a perfect kind of movie that an old Warner studio would have been interested in because it's a movie that engages in history. It, it, it shows some difficult realities of history. It asks difficult questions. It forces us to face some, you know, the, you know, this, this tough combination of courage and inhumanity that created, you know, not only the atomic bomb, but a, a lot of the Red Scare, right? 
And this is this is the kind of content that that made Warner Brothers stand out from other studios. I mean, even their musicals in the 30s. I always talk about this in class, right? You've got the MGM musicals, you got Paramount doing some musicals, and they're all pretty happy. And you got Warner Brothers makes a musical, and it they're all these backstage musicals about characters about to be out of a job because it's <laughs> the Great Depression and their company's gonna get shut down, right? So it's it's, you know, or in Gold Eggers of 33, right? The last number is about the forgotten man. I mean, you have this entire huge Busby Berkeley choreographed number directly engaging the plight of World War One vets. And that that is so courageous. Um, and that that's the kind of thing they would do. You know, they every kind of movie, they did it their own way. And they, you know, they did lots of stuff that was kind of run-of-the-mill Hollywood, but they also did a lot of things, like you said, that were always pushing boundaries. And I, I don't think Daryl Zanuck, well, of course, Zanuck was at Warner Brothers for a long time, but I don't think Zanuck would have done Gentleman's Agreement in the 40s had it not been for the kinds of boundaries that Warner's uh, was pushing. I actually, I, I, I want to drag us a little bit away from uh, the appreciation and back to the, um, and I'm, I, I, I'll actually ask both of you this, um, uh, because Eric, Eric is a labor historian, um, and you talk about unions some in here. And of course, I, I, I immediately, this immediately conjured up like when I was reading about the union trouble. I was immediately the scene in The Godfather just occurred to me, and I guess that was that was based on on Harry Cohn. I guess that Waltz is based on Harry Cohn in The Godfather, but oh, or at least that's right. what I read. Um, but um, you know what was? Can you tell us a little bit about? And, and honestly, Eric, if you want to leap in here, with because I know you know some of this too. Um, what was sort of the, the the labor situation and and the relationship between the studios and the unions in California through this period? And how did it change over time? Right? I mean, is it the same sort of story about unions uh, and, and unions sort of all over the United States in other industries that they have this sort of big influence, but then it declines over time? Or but could you talk a little bit about that? The the labor relations in Hollywood. Uh, yeah, I mean, with with this, right, I mean, just like any other, you know, kind of when you're when you're kind of past the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, just like any other industry, Hollywood was now forced with um, standardization of things, right? I mean, that's one thing that, um, you know, when you when you look at the contracts and you hear what when and of course, it's kind of, you know, I, I, I'm, I always hesitate to feel bad for actors in the 30s as much as they complained, because it was the Great Depression and people were pretty, you know, you know, to be able to make the money they made. And even if you had to work six days a week, you you were doing pretty well compared to everybody else. But um, when you when you look at these these contracts of, you know, essentially the studio had complete control over everything you did for like a whole decade. Um, you know, a lot of them were seven year contracts and you're working six days a week. And until, unless you were a major star, you didn't really get a lot of time. You know, and that's why they made so many movies in you know, Warner Brothers. I counted a couple of these years in the early thirties. It was almost a hundred movies in a single year. So that's why you have like Cagney and Betty Davis and a lot of these people in the early part of their career making like four movies a year. I mean, it was just, it, it was incredible. So, I mean, there was definitely in Hollywood, um, and of course, then, you know, if they're working all the, all the other labor, all the other below the line labors also working. Right. And when the stars are, you know, not acting, you have people, you know, doing sets and lighting and, and, you know, retooling cameras and doing all kinds of stuff. So a lot of these people working around the clock and where it got, so you had the, the labor issue, I think that, and Eric can speak maybe to the larger, um, you know, 
U.S. trends. But as far as like work hours and stuff, that was coming up in Hollywood. But where it got really dicey for a while is when the mob started taking over unions and was shaking down studios to try to avoid strikes. So that's one of the things I try to pinpoint in my book is that when some of these labor leaders take over and are literally shaking down all of the and threatening um, all the studio heads. I mean, there's very few people that could intimidate a Harry Warner or a Harry Cohn, um, but Willie Byoff and some of these these people were some of the few people that could scare those guys. Um, so I think that speaks to the power of this era and just the discussion of unionization and the the threats that it could have um, when taken in a very dangerous direction. Yeah, I mean that that's actually some really useful context for the scene in The Godfather, right? That that there is this right. sort of understanding of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's two things, right? I mean, that, 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 um, you know, at that moment in time, um, you know, and, and I think you still see this, right? There's this, uh, there's this moment in Grizzly Man, right? Where, uh, Herzog, you know, whatever, and I still have theories about that movie, but, um, you know, where, movie. yeah, where, where Timothy Treadwell is like filming the, you know, the, 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 the Fox that's on his tent and Herzog's narration is, you know, with the unions, you know, this kind of filming would never be possible. And it's like, OK, Werner, like, thanks for that, like, random, random shot at the unions. Um, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, but there's this kind of, you know, standardization, it, 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 of course, takes away from the power of the the person who really is in charge, which I think that in this era, this earlier era was the studio head and in the auteur era is supposed to be the director. Um, and you know, says, no, like we're not going to do these things. And so I think that there's a kind of a tension there between those who have this like driving vision and don't want to be, you know, broken, uh, have that limited by rules versus people who are like, you know, maybe I don't want to work 18 hours a day. Um, and so I think there's some some there can be tension there, but I mean the other reality, of course, is that you know these kind of craft unions that um, uh, were vulnerable to being mobbed up, right? That that uh, and and you know I mean if you think about the role of the Hollywood unions in the labor movement more broadly, I mean the the only really moment that I think before you know the last couple of decades really where those unions have have kind of been in any kind of a vanguard is the Disney strike um, and the animators in the, in the early forties. But for the most part, um, you know, they, 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 it's, it's kind of like the railroad unions in that you have these like, you know, divided up craft unions that um, often operate in a very conservative manner. And, 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 you know, because they are really oftentimes relatively small in membership, um, but also each have the ability to kind of throw a, a you know, to kind of halt, all operations that it becomes relatively easy for um, bad elements to take them over. And I mean, there's no question that was an issue in, in Hollywood as well as naturally enough, some other unions in that, in that era. Um, you know, I think that it gets overstated by people who are anti-union, but there's no question that that's a part of the story. And, and certainly in Hollywood is. Yeah. Cause once you get to the late forties, it's, it's a different, it's a different issue. It's like the, it was kind of around the origins. Cause it's like, the Screen Actors Guild, right, that was, you know, that, did, as far as I know, did not get really mobbed up. But it was it was some of these other other trade unions that were, you know, and that, that's what was interesting about the 30s. A lot of these unions were just starting. The unions were getting, you know, either or established unions were getting new placement in Hollywood. So it was an opportunity for kind of you know, some of these nefarious figures to take over. 
Um, but you're right. It probably does get overstated, like, you know, that 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 was going on everywhere. And it really it wasn't going on everywhere. It was going in in, in, a, in a few key areas. Uh, so I have one more question. It's also sort of content. And and I, I, I sort of reading the book, and, and I know a lot more about the studio system now. Well, after I read the book, but I also know more, more about it than when I was a kid. Um, but it it is interesting to me that... Um, I think the first introduction that kids of my generation had to the idea of a Hollywood studio, right, that this whole concept of a Hollywood studio, almost every kid of our generation, the first studio they knew was Warner Brothers. And the reason they knew it was because of the, the cartoon division, right, the animation division. And, I mean, you actually don't talk about that a ton here, right? I mean, is that, we talk about it some, is that like, there's, is there's it just a such a big story? So yeah, the, so, look, go ahead. That's my question. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a big story in and of itself. I mean, it's certainly important. The reason why it only gets a little bit of coverage in my book is because the brothers really didn't know much about it or pay much attention to it. And it's unfortunate because you're, you're right. I mean, we, you know, the first awareness is, yeah, the, the Warner Brothers cartoons and, and the Looney Tunes and all this stuff. Right. I mean, it. And the the brothers had had really no idea. And I actually got the, I, I'd heard this anecdote. I got it confirmed. I did a talk in November in Burbank at the Burbank Public Library. And a bunch of Warner Brothers employees were there. Some of the Warner family was there. Um, a lot of interesting stories came out of that. But with animation, I talked to an animator who just retired. And he heard it straight from Chuck Jones that um, Jack Warner would come into their office every now and then and ask literally how's our mouse doing <clears throat> right i mean he had no clue absolutely no clue <laughs> that they didn't have mickey mouse um, and and it's just you know and that, and that's that's the reality of it it was just so off their radar um unfortunately because it was something you know there there was a lot of creative people doing some really cool stuff um and i even put in my book i mean i in, in some of the fan magazines i found polls of the most popular cartoon characters and quite regularly in the forties, the Warner brothers were beating Disney. Um, and that's something kind of hard to imagine. Um, but you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's just unfortunate that they weren't more plugged into that. Yeah, no, that, that is super fascinating. I mean, you know, um, but, um, but those cartoons are, are, you know, um, uh, you know, they, they hold the test of time. I mean, I watch them frequently, um, yeah. even, even today. So it's, that, that is, that is, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're probably the, the element of thirties and forties cinema that is still most commonly watched today. I mean, you can get them up. Most of them, I think you can get on max now. Um, although, mm -hmm. but well, Eric, did you have another question? Cause I have, a, no, go ahead, a, go ahead, Rob, go ahead. Okay. So I don't know if we could treat this as a wrap up question, but, um, so uh, it's interesting that earlier you talked about that you'd seen four years uh, in Germany on YouTube. Can you talk a little bit about, and, and actually I, I'm curious Eric's thoughts on this too. Um, people are very frustrated uh, right now with sort of the streaming universe, right? With all of these different firms uh, um, contending and comparing and any movie you want to watch now, right? It's it's almost never, you almost always have to pay like two ninety nine to see it, something like that, right? Um, but I mean, this era we have right now where you can stream four years in Germany on YouTube into, I mean, this is sort of a magical era for revisiting cinema, right? You know, and that has to contend against how many films we've lost and everything else, right? Um, 
and, and you know how badly some films uh, have have deteriorated or, and so forth, right? But still, I mean, it feels to me like. Because all I wanted to do when reading this book is go and watch these movies, right? Even like Gold Diggers of 1933, mm. which I've never seen, right? But it sounds interesting, right? Um, and I can, right? I can um, watch them. It's just like, you know, even if they're not on a service, right? Um, so it does feel to me that this book is almost perfectly placed um, to sort of help us think about this and sort of when we all have the opportunity to reach out and watch these movies, um, that we can actually do so, right? It's not, it's not, right. and that must have helped on the research side too, right? Oh, Because definitely. 15 years ago, you never could have seen these movies, right? I mean, right. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it was great because, I mean, especially with home video, I mean, George Feltenstein at Warner Brothers has done a wonderful job um, helping, you know, get funding to restore movies, but also to make them available. You know, these great restored prints for $20 on Blu-ray of so many great movies. Um, you know, so, you know, a lot of them, I, you know, you just, you know, I would buy because I knew I'd want to watch them again, <clears throat> but um, a lot of it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of kind of griping today about, you know, you don't own anything that's, you know, your your library, you know, if it's digital, you know, some there's always somebody else that can mess with it, right? Even if you buy something digitally, it can go away or, you know, you're, you know, if you're just watching Netflix or Max or um, even the Criterion channel, whatever, I mean, your collection is monitored and, um, <clears throat> um, you know, it'll change in and out, you know, by somebody else. And the flip side of that that I don't think it's talked enough is exactly what you're talking about. There are certain things we might not be able to see even on home video that have found its way onto YouTube and you can find, I mean, one thing I revisit all the time just because it's fascinating is the, the wonderful historian Kevin Brownlow made a, a like a 10 part documentary in like 1980 called Hollywood. And <clears throat> Brownlow was one of these people who was so ahead of the curve. There was only a few other people really going to these old Hollywood stars, even people that were working in the teens when they were still alive and getting them on camera, telling them their stories. And because of rights, and I've, I've talked to Kevin about this, because of the rights of the movies and all kinds of other stuff, he can never get it like released through Kino or Criterion, but it's on YouTube because it's it just got lost in this like kind of copyright hell um, or, or not hell, but like a purgatory <clears throat> that um, you can go and watch this and, and, and listen to these people and, and hear their stories. And it's just incredible to have this, um, you know, some of the stuff make its way, you know, bubble up. Um, that we might not ever get to see any other way. So, um, and in a lot of the shorts, I mean, even some Warner Brothers shorts and stuff from from the twenties or the early teens. There was one. Um, there was a, a series that the uh, the Lost, not the Lost World. I got a picture of it in my book. But anyway, some of the stuff they did from the teens for a while was floating around on YouTube. I was able to catch little bits of it while I was writing. Um, and of course, some of the stuff turns up on archive.org. Uh, and things like that. And, and it's, it's really it, it, for, for researching history um, and not even just film history, but history in general. I mean, there's some of this, this online streaming and YouTube and public access kind of uh, databases uh, um, are just, there's an unprecedented amount of access right now um, to really fully tell stories that uh, about our past that we haven't had access to, like you said, 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I remember Scarecrow Video, uh, the video, the great video store in Seattle, um, where you could go and you could see all of these movies that you could never find anywhere else, and like that is diminutive now compared to what is available to us, and it was just sort of from our fingertips.
Eric, I know you used to publish lots of uh, you, when you had your film series at LGM, which it's kind of an, an abeyance, but um, you still yeah, find it sometimes. Yeah, I need to get back to that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess I feel about it two ways. I mean, I mean, Chris is basically right. I mean, that, uh, you know, if we I, I think a lot of the, the tension right now is coming out of a kind of post, you know, when everybody cut cable and went on to Netflix, uh, you know, kind of like a, the the original idea behind Google Books that like everything would just be available. And, you know. And not surprisingly, like companies are going to make money, right? So then they start charging and then there's a lot of companies and then you end up paying as much money for all these subscriptions combined as you had for cable to begin with. And there's a sort of grumbling about it. Um, and, you know, this kind of ignores the fact that uh, of this availability, I mean, you know, that, you know, when, when we started watching films in the nineties, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember um, for instance, you know, one of the first films, um, that really got me to be a huge film fan. And I think I watched it maybe my junior year uh, was when the uncut, like remastered version of the wild bunch came out on DVD. Um, mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, the, the way that was supposed to look was, was had not been available for a long, long time. And, and that today is such a, you know, like a classic movie. The idea of that not being available is, is almost impossible to, to imagine. And now we're at the point where it's like, you know, you know, if you're uh, really into film, like you might be grumbling, like, why, why can't this, you know, why isn't this really interesting Filipino movie I saw in 2005, uh, you know, not available uh, kind of thing? Because like everything else is available, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of amazing thing. But at the same time, I think that, um, you know, if if you actually care about your media, you have to own a physical copy of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And if you don't, like you're trusting a corporation and who the fuck would do that? So, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that that's the that, that, that's the thing that people have to kind of get around is, you know, some of the reason for um, embracing all of this was that they could get rid of their CDs, right? Or they get rid of their movies and everything is just going to be streaming and it's going to make the house cleaner and all this other stuff, which is fine as far as it goes. But again, you are now trusting corporate America to manage your art, which seems like a really bad idea to me. But yeah. at the same time, at the same time, there's no question that the amount of stuff that's available is like unfreaking believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword for sure. Because I mean, yeah, like with with music, right? There are certain things that aren't on Spotify, like movie soundtracks and stuff that I really like that I still either have on CD or they they someone presses it on a record and I'll get it because you can't, you know, it's not everything is on Spotify. Just like not everything is on Netflix or HBO Max or whatever. But we're lucky with Warner Brothers because, you know, HBO is a part of that. So there's a lot of great Warner Brothers movies, including the cartoons and shorts and stuff that are on there, um, you know, they seem to be embracing their history in a really cool way that, you know, other corporations, you know, kind of overlook. So we're definitely fortunate there, but yeah, it's, you kind of have to have, if you, if you want to have everything that you want, there's not going to be a one fix solution for sure. And I guess it should be said that as, as copyright, you know, now that we're not having increased, you know, extensions of copyright to protect Disney, um, that every year more and more stuff does end up now entering the public domain. And in another 15 or 20 years, you know, when you start having the stuff from the 40s entering the public domain, that's going to be, uh, you know, it, that could do a lot to make things a lot more widely available. Um, True. That, that, that in, you know, ways that is not totally dependent on the, the, the copyright owner. Absolutely.
So for my last question, I want to take a serious left turn here. Uh, this is a this is an issue. So the, the, John Wayne is not a huge presence in this book, right? I mean, he's an important presence, but he's not a huge presence. Um, but Luminous and I have talked about this a lot. We've talked about it. We did a we did a you know fifty best westerns uh, podcast once. Not as a scholar, but sort of as a watcher of movies. Tell us your thoughts on John Wayne as movie star and especially as actor. Um, because Loomis and I have had violent disagreements about this this particular question in the past. Well, I, I will say, if you do anything more with westerns, I, I you need to you need to talk to my my friend Andrew Nelson, who's probably the the western expert um, on a lot of levels and is very knowledgeable about John Wayne. Because Wayne is just a walking contradiction. The more you learn about him, you know, very different uh, personally versus the things he says. Uh, you know, to make himself sound bigger politically. But as an actor, <clears throat> I think I think because so many people are frustrated. I mean, I've talked to people that won't watch his movies because of this, the, the perception of, of his politics at the end of his life. As an actor, I think he commands the screen in a way that nobody else really does. Um, I think that he gets attention... Um, in ways that that are kind of incredible. I mean, I you know I I've been teaching for years. Um, I'm done in a couple of years now, but for a lot of years I taught the Searchers um, in a pop culture class, and it's another one of these movies that would get students interested in old movies, as as well as get you know some of them that just didn't you know I, they all they did was hear bad things about John Wayne. Now they're like, wow, this his ability to to play this complicated hero yet awful racist tussling with his soul was like really good. Um, so I think that John Wayne, the way, the way I look at it is he, he, he does a lot. He's one of these actors that does, you know, before the, you know, method acting, he's definitely not a method actor, but I mean, he's one of these people that's able to do a lot with a little, you know, with a glance, with his eyes, with the way he postures himself, um, <clears throat> with a grin um, that I think it is hugely influential. In in terms, especially, you know, when you get into the action era and all this kind of stuff, you know, kind of the the big, you know, the you know, not not that Arnold Schwarzenegger is as good of an actor as John Wayne, but it's like you get into the action movies of the 80s and, and 90s and stuff like that. And I think you you have these attempts to 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 push some of those movies in in directions because uh, of of people like John Wayne. But I, I think, you know, I think as as an actor, when even John Wayne, I mean. You know, he, he still did The Quiet Man, right? I mean, not every movie is kind of this rough and tumble Western. So I don't know. I I understand why people are torn on John Wayne. I understand why people don't like John Wayne. Um, but I still think he has a, a movie star quality and presence that transcends kind of everything. And and he's one of those people that should always be up on that mantle of like, what what is the peak of movie stardom and what does it look like? I mean, I don't, I don't think I disagree. I mean, I'm the one who's skeptical about Wayne um, <laughs> as an actor, but I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I mean, Wayne is a, you know, Wayne is is you know the movie star in a sense, um, and uh, uh, and unquestionably can command the presence. I, I'm, uh, my point when we're when Farley and I are talking about this is 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 more that you know he does one thing very very well, but when I compare him to Stewart or Fonda. Like to me, those guys are just far superior actors because they can do so much. I mean, can you imagine John Wayne being directed by Hitchcock? Like, I, you know, I just it just wouldn't work. Right. I mean, like, you know, can you imagine Wayne trying to do some of the you know, it's just I've been rewatching. I started rewatching yesterday. Um, 
um, the Lady Eve, and uh, which is an old favorite of mine. Like, can you imagine Wayne, like, in that Henry Fonda character? I mean, no. Like, he can do one thing. Although, did he you, does did it you very, very John well. Wayne, did you see John Wayne on I Love Lucy? <laughs> I don't think I've seen that, no. It, you, you might be surprised at how fun it is. There, yeah. There's an episode, there's a season of I Love Lucy where they're in Hollywood um, because Desi gets a job. Um, and and all, all kinds of, you know, Billy, William Holden is in all kinds of Hollywood, you know, is in this. But it, but Wayne is in a particularly funny episode. But I do agree with you. I mean, there are people I mean, like Clint Eastwood today, right? I mean, there are certain people who just they do they have one thing that they do well. And I think for the most part, that is Wayne. I mean, yeah, he did. Like I said, he did The Quiet Man. He did certain movies that deviated um, and he could do those well. But for the most part, he he played himself and he he changed it with his age. I mean, I think something like The Shootist, his last movie, is an incredible movie and an incredible kind of commentary on um, looking back at heroism and was it all heroic or not. Um, and and I think he I think he evolved with his, you know, the type. Yes, I think he evolved with it well. But I agree, I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of things that Jimmy Stewart did absolutely that Wayne could certainly not do. Um, well, Eric, do you have any other questions or any other observations? No, I think I'm good. I mean, um, I mean, I just want to say I appreciate the book and I learned a ton. And uh, of course, I'm always happy to, happy to think about movies um, and talk about them. And so it's, it's been a blast talking to you and, and to you too, Rob. All right, great. Um, well, Chris, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to thank uh, LGM listeners uh, for uh, getting this far as well. Um, I heartily recommend uh, the Warner Brothers from University Press, University Press of Kentucky, where, interestingly enough, I am a member of the board, but I do not get any uh, – <laughs> I'm not paid, unfortunately. So, um, But uh, it's a fabulous book. And, uh, and I, would, I will say, to, to actually toot that horn one a bit more, and people don't understand this, UPK is one of – the major um, uh, uh, publishers of Hollywood history. Um, and there's lots of Hollywood history that comes out of this press. People don't understand that. Um, they don't really anticipate it. But it's hugely important in the um, history of movies and the history of entertainment. So, um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. We would like to thank Elizabeth Nelson of The Paranoid Style for supplying as our intro and outro music I'd Bet My Lands and Titles, a track on the album For Executive Meeting. If you would like to support the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast or any other aspect of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money project, please visit us at www.patreon.com slash lawyersgunsandmoney or donate at the PayPal link on the website. Thank you. Thank you.